the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Okay, in five, four, three. Welcome back, everybody, to Arthropod, your entomology-themed podcast. I'm your host today, Michael Scavarla of Penn State University, and I'm going solo. John and Jody are not here this week, uh, but I am interviewing somebody that I've worked very closely with for the last couple of years, Logan Stinger, my soon-to-be graduating master's student, uh, my first student, in fact, and I wanted to bring him on today to talk about some of the work that he's been doing both in my lab and uh, outside of it for his job. And so with that, Logan, can you introduce yourself and say hi to the folks at home? Yeah. So as Dr. Scavaro said, uh, my name is Logan Stanger. I am, uh, I guess, the full-time watershed specialist at the Huntington County Conservation District. And I also serve as a part-time graduate student uh, in the Penn State Department of Entomology. So before we get into the work that you've been doing here, uh, can you talk a little bit about the work that you do for the Huntington County Water District? Sure. Uh, So... I've been at the conservation district since October of 2018. Uh, during that time, I've kind of discovered that I think the more most difficult part of my job is trying to explain to people exactly what I do. Um, and so the easiest way I've kind of come to describe it is uh, we're kind of a multifaceted district in that uh, similar to state agencies, Uh, We are an agency that's dedicated to the conservation of natural resources. And so specifically, we uh, emphasize soil and water conservation. And the watershed specialist position, I think, came about sometime around 2000. And it was started by the Department of uh, Environmental Protection here in Pennsylvania to really be the, the local, you know, hands on the ground, you know, representative for a lot of the different state and federal programs that are available to you know improve water quality on on properties and so again the easiest way i found to describe what a watershed specialist does is i kind of break it into two main categories Uh, the first is project management and development and implementation and then the second is water quality monitoring and so depending on where you're at in pennsylvania each district does a little bit of different stuff And so Pennsylvania has 67 counties, uh, 66 of them all have a conservation district. And for the counties here in central Pennsylvania, like Huntington, we do a lot of agricultural work because agriculture is a huge industry in this area. And so a lot of our projects are dedicated to improving aquatic resources on the farm uh, is a major one. So doing stream restoration projects, uh, implementing best management practices, uh, it could be anything from, you know, controlling manure runoff to implementing stream bank fence to keep cows out of a stream and then doing the water quality monitoring work to, you know, make sure that these projects that we're encouraging landowners to implement are actually are actually working. So kind of doing, you know, putting our money where our mouth is in a way. So when you're doing some of these projects with landowners, are you who's paying for all of that? How do they get the money? To implement these projects? Are they paying for it themselves or do you help them secure money from 
somewhere? Yeah, it's so it's a little bit of everything. Sometimes the landowners do have an out-of-pocket cost. Our goal is usually to be able to supply anywhere from like 70 to 90% of the project through any of the different grant opportunities that exist, whether it's at the state level, the federal level, uh, even some private foundations have, have different opportunities. And so, you know, depending on the scale of the project, uh, sometimes we're able to fund them, you know, 100%, uh, but other times, and I would say probably the majority of the time, uh, the landowner does have some out of pocket in, in, in the cost of the project. Uh, but again, we usually try to, to offset that as much as possible and again, target that range of being able to supply somewhere between 70 to, to 90% of the cost. And what has been the biggest project that you've tackled since you've been at the district? So I think my largest project to date, uh, there's a couple that come to mind. One was, it was a little bit shy of about 2,000 linear feet of stream, and it was a full stream restoration on a farm uh, in the Shavers Creek Valley, which is actually pretty popular for, for Penn State, given the, the Shavers Creek Environmental Center. But this, proper, this project was located on a property that's operated by one of the larger, larger dairy farms in the area. And so this barn, they keep, I think, around 150 head of young cows or heifers. Um, so the you know, kind of the next line of, of milk cows. And at the time, a couple of years ago, the cows had basically unrestricted free free access to the stream. And so there were, you know, some some pretty severe areas that had severe levels of erosion. Uh, the banks were anywhere from, you know, four to five foot vertical drops in some places. The stream was unnaturally widened as a result of the cows being able to go across it any time. So when, you know, naturally the stream should have been only like five feet across. There were certain stretches that were, you know, 15, 20 feet across. And just the vegetation itself was grazed down to the, the bare minimum, uh, which contributed to the erosion every time we had a high flow event. And then, you know, the cows being able to, to defecate in the stream contributed to, to manure running off into the stream. And so this project that we worked on uh, kind of tackled everything. So it was actually a really cool project. And so the first stages was actually implementing in-stream, uh, what we call in-stream restoration structures. And it's a combination of different things like mud sills and tow logs that uh, both serve to stabilize the, the eroding stream banks, as well as provide uh, really valuable fish habitat. And so after we did all that, we went back through and implemented stream bank fencing to keep all the cows out. We did construct a one crossing through the stream so that the cows could still access uh, drinking water. But, you know, we kind of reinforced that area so they can't uh, trample as bad as they were before when they had total access to the stream. And then we went back through it and did a full three and a half acre uh, riparian buffer planning, which I believe consisted of about 550 native trees and shrubs that were planted within the fenced area that runs right along the stream. So getting that nice and nice and reforested to both a shade out the stream and then also to uh, provide leaf litter in the water to hopefully recolonize the macroinvertebrate population. I guess I'm always a little bit surprised that landowners are just allowed to degrade the streams that they have like that. But regardless, yeah, sure. it's nice to see that you know, we can get it fixed. Yeah, there's there's certain regulations that, you know, limit the the amount of disturbance they're allowed to have. But, you know, there's there, there's no laws that say you don't have you have to you have to fence out your stream. And so really trying to work with those landowners to to encourage that, because it's uh, 
you know, very simple practice that can make a, a world of difference on improving stream health. How much of what you do is education directed at landowners saying like, these are the benefits you get from restoring the streams or keeping them nice in the first place? Yeah. So that that's always, you know, kind of the starting point for a lot of these projects is, you know, if the landowner hasn't already reached out to us with an interest in doing something, us reaching out to them to, to try and encourage them to, to implement these practices. And so again, that's always, that's always your starting point is just meeting with the landowner and kind of trying to make them recognize the issue and, 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 and how to, how we address the issue. And so I always tell landowners, you know, our goal is we're trying to find a balance between the economic needs of the farm and then the environmental needs of the stream. So moving on then to the second part of what you mentioned, the bioquality monitoring or monitoring the streams. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that really ties into the work we've been doing together. So I think that would be a good transition to talk about the work you've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. And so again, 99% of people, when I say I do water quality monitoring, usually the first, their first response is, oh, so you go out and you know collect water samples and test people's drinking water. And to an extent, we do do some of that. We do collect water samples and, and send them into labs, uh, but it's not always just to, you know, protect drinking water. And so there's really three main areas that a lot of scientists and biologists uh, use to monitor water quality. And it kind of be divided into the chemical properties, the physical properties, and then the biological properties, which are probably in a lot of cases, the most overlooked, overlooked by, you know, just the common public. And so uh, the chemistry, that's usually what people think of, again, going out to, to, to the water and actually collecting a sample and then testing to see, you know, what different, what different stuff's in this water are we finding? Herbicides, pesticides, pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, is, and, and again, the public size, is there pollution in my water? Is it safe to drink? Uh, the second area then, the physical stuff. So a lot of that deals with looking at the habitat quality of a stream. And so, for example, looking at going back to that project I talked about earlier, uh, if we were to do when we did a habitat assessment there, you know, the habitat was pretty poor. The substrate in the stream, so the rocks, the cobble, uh, the bedrock, all that type of stuff was really covered in fine sediment, which was a result of, you know, several decades of pasture, you know, the cows having full unrestricted access to the stream. And so there was very little vegetative cover. The in-stream, you know, again, the substrate was being filled in with different fine sediment. Uh, the stream was, the banks were falling apart, contributing to the sediment, not just in, you know, our specific section, but even just downstream. And so compared to, you know, a typical headwater stream that has, you know, really nice riffles and runs, uh, it's going to have nice big boulders and cobbles. They're going to be very minimal, minimal sediment accumulation in those nice headwater forested streams. And so looking at those habitat characteristics is another important way that we can kind of indicate, you know, how healthy this stream is and are the water quality conditions good or bad. And so moving on then to the third, which again is probably the most overlooked, but in my opinion, probably the single most important is the biological conditions. So actually looking at the organisms that inhabit those streams and what they can tell us about how healthy the stream is. And so the chemical and physical properties, while important, are sometimes difficult to draw interpretations from because they vary so easily. 
And so if I was to measure, you know, the chemistry of a stream today, and then we were to get a huge rainstorm tomorrow and the flows come up and I was to measure the chemistry again, we're going to see a change. Uh, same with the habitat. If I measure the habitat now, and then again, a couple months from now in the summer, when, you know, flows might be lower, the habitat conditions are going to change. And so the benefit of using these biological organisms is they're kind of the, the, the people in the stream being exposed to all of these, these different changes 24 seven. And so again, when people think of the biological organisms in the stream, a big one is fish. Uh, we do use fish to do water quality monitoring. Usually the big one that people affiliate with clean water is trout. Uh, they're an important species as well as a, you know, both from an ecological standpoint and then a more of a socio-economical standpoint um, since they're an important game fish. Uh, but probably the most important group of organisms that we use to assess water quality are the bendic macroinvertebrates or the aquatic insects, the crayfish, the mollusks, the snails, and, and clams, things like that. And so worldwide, uh, a lot of global water quality assessment strategies want scientists to look at the bendic macroinvertebrates. And so fish, in a way, you know, if you have a certain pollution event happens and they don't like the environment, they have the ability to kind of move away to a certain extent to get out of there. Whereas those macroinvertebrates, they're not as, as mobile. And so they're, you know, a lot of them are spending, you know, anywhere from a year to three years of their life in the same one square meter area of a stream. And so they're constantly being exposed to any type of changes or disturbances that are happening within that stream. And so, again, a lot of the public is not as familiar with the macroinvertebrates. Probably one of the groups that are more familiar with this aspect of them are fly fishermen. Again, they're interested in it from the fishing standpoint. The flies that they're mimicking are actually the, the various macroinvertebrates that we're collecting, especially mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies, which are probably the most common or most macro, macroinvertebrate affiliated with, with clean water. And so when we go out to these streams and we collect macroinvertebrates, we're looking at the diversity, the overall abundance, and that type of thing. We know that certain macroinvertebrates have different tolerances to pollution. And so by kind of determining which species are here and which ones aren't, we can kind of create this picture of, of how healthy the stream is. So outside of fly fishermen, do you think many of the public would recognize some of these insects that we're talking about that are typically found in streams? Um, are they something that a lot of people would interact with or see or have any kind of familiarity with? Um, I think people are familiar with it. I mean, even just kids. I mean, kids are, you know, go, you go to a stream and you're playing in the stream and you're lifting up the rocks. As a kid for myself, you know, that was one of the more fun things growing up. Um, just because you always found something different underneath the rocks. And so, you know, I think the public, you know, commonly recognizes some of the the larger, I don't know, more characteristic macroinvertebrates. So things like crayfish and then helgramites are another one. Some might be able to distinguish uh, mayflies and stoneflies. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of people are going to just look at them and, you know, yeah, they're insects. I don't, whatever they all, they look like creepy crawly bugs in the stream. And so you mentioned that you collect these macroinvertebrates and then can determine whether a stream is polluted or not polluted, if it's good quality or, or not good quality. 
how exactly do you do that? How do you do you score these macroinvertebrates to come up with, you know, a number for this stream quality? Sure. I guess to kind of take a step back, when we go out to these streams and we determine, you know, the certain section that we're going to to survey, uh, we collect uh, our Bendic macroinvertebrates. We then preserve them in ethanol and take them back to a lab. And then there's a subsampling process so that we're not stuck, you know, identifying tens of thousands of insects at once. Uh, usually we subsample out about 200 individuals that are representative of the whole, the whole sample. And so we then take the, those 200 individuals and put them under a microscope and actually identify them down pretty far uh, taxonomically. So we take them to the genus level. Uh, we, some protocols, you know, want us to go to species. Some, you know, don't require that far. Uh, but here in Pennsylvania, the standard is, is to the genus. And so once we do that, uh, we have a pretty good understanding of which, which taxa uh, are sensitive or non-sensitive or tolerant to, to pollution. And so each taxa actually has what we call a pollution tolerance score, which is a number from zero to 10. Uh, I think zero to four is usually considered to be the most sensitive. And then it's like five to five to seven is kind of the middle of the line. Then anything eight and 10 is, is usually considered to be pretty pollution tolerant. And so after we, we go through and we identify all these macroinvertebrates, uh, we really start to look at a couple of different metrics. And so again, things as simple as, you know, how many different how many different species did we did we identify here? How many different taxa did we identify here? What was the ratio of mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies to diptera or fly larva? How many sensitive individuals did we find, regardless of you know taxonomic grouping? Here in Pennsylvania, again, we calculate uh, six different metrics that each kind of examine a different aspect of the macroinvertebrate community in relation to, again, abundance, diversity, those pollution tolerance scores. And once we do that, we're able to use those six, six metrics to calculate what we call an index of biological integrity or an IBI. And so this IBI score is, ranges from zero to 100 uh, with lower scores indicating that the stream is pretty unhealthy and that the higher score is indicating that, hey, this stream's, this stream's pretty good. And so the state will actually determine, you know, different regulations and protections based on, on these IBI scores. And so, for example, for most streams, an IBI less than 50 is considered impaired um, for not meeting water quality standards. And so if a stream becomes listed as impaired, it actually gets listed at the federal level, not just the state level. And then it typically will rank a lot higher for funding for different projects that will you know, implement practices to hopefully improve that, that water quality and, and the IBI as a result. Uh, certain streams that are generally considered higher quality, so things that what we would call high quality or exceptional value, um, they actually have stricter regulations in that an IBI less than 63. So they're, you know, reducing that, uh, that leeway, I guess. And so if a, a high quality stream has an IBI less than 63, it's considered as impaired. And again, it will rank higher for, for different, uh, different funding sources. And so that IBI then really paints a picture of 
you know, how healthy, you know, not just a stream is, but sometimes entire watersheds. And so if you go throughout a watershed and you take a bunch of different samples of macroinvertebrates and then calculate those IBIs and compare them, you can actually identify which areas are, are being impacted by anthropogenic activities, so human activities. And so we're able to focus conservation efforts or, you know, improve our understanding of the watershed to, to where we need to focus conservation efforts in that regard. So just to clarify, within a watershed, you can get different stream IBIs or different stream water qualities within the same watershed or within the same stream, even depending on what's going on in the immediate area around the stream or upstream or downstream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, streams are very complex ecosystems. You know, you're looking at a stream in one section and from a broader picture, it's being impacted by everything upstream of that area. It kind of goes along with the, the famous saying, everything flows downstream. And so every site along a stream, you know, not only is it being impacted by kind of the local surroundings, but also everything going on, going on above it that drains to that point. And so again, streams are very complex and, so, and, and yeah, you can have totally different, you know, conditions depending on what's going on in different areas of the watershed. And backing up just a little bit to the macroinvertebrates, are some of the macros sensitive to different types of pollution? Like if you look at specific groups within the sample that you pull out and say a stream is polluted, can you tell this is probably agricultural pollution or this is acid mine runoff, which is a major issue here in central Pennsylvania or some other impacting issue? Like, can you tell or suss out like what the pollution is based on the macros that you're looking at? Yeah, to, to a certain extent. So I guess in my area, again, since I'm dealing mostly with agriculture, I've just gotten accustomed to, to you know, what, what, what I expect to see in a agriculturally impacted type of stream. Uh, so for example, in, in agriculturally impaired streams, uh, usually a important source of pollution is nutrients. Uh, so nitrogen and phosphorus that, you know, may run off from, you know, whether it's manure from an actual farmer that's being spread on fields or other fertilizers that are being applied in a nearby area. Well, that nutrient pollution or organic pollution is causing increases in whether it's algae or, you know, even just, you know, the nutrients themselves flowing through the water column. And so you'll see kind of a spike in certain, in certain taxa that, you know, thrive in those conditions. And so, for example, one that's coming to mind are the, the hydropsyche uh, caddis flies. And so these caddis flies are actually what we call collector gatherers. And so they actually build a very fine silken net that's used to kind of collect stuff that's flowing through the water column that they'll then eat. Well, in these streams that have lots of nutrients or food available, I mean, these hydropsyche caddis flies just thrive because one of the most important resources they need, food is readily abundant. Um, same goes for, you know, some of the, the beetle larvae. Uh, so a famous one is water pennies, uh, really these real flat little beetle larvae that are grazers. They eat a lot of the algae in a stream. And so if you have a lot of nutrient pollution, typically you have a lot of algae growth and, you know, these, these water pennies just thrive in that. Uh, the same goes for some dirt, uh, certain other types of pollution. And so, for example, uh, acid deposition or streams having low alkalinity and low pHs is kind of becoming a, a topic of interest here in Pennsylvania. And so one of the 
one of the groups of macroinvertebrates that are pretty tolerant to, to low pH is, is stoneflies. And so stoneflies are usually affiliated with really clean water. Yet, if you look at a, a stream that's impacted by, by acid deposition, usually what you'll find is that there's only stoneflies and there's nothing else. There's very few mayflies, there's very few caddisflies. And that's usually an indication that, hey, this stream probably has a pretty low pH and maybe be impacted to that regard. Um, and so, yeah, to a certain extent, based on, you know, what macroinvertebrates you find, you can, you know, determine what the pollution source can be. But factoring in, again, a lot of that chemical, the physical assessments, um, even just looking at, you know, a land use map and what's going on in the area, tying that all together into one big picture is your best way to say, okay, this watershed's being impacted by, by agriculture, this watershed's being impacted by mine drainage, and so on. So we've talked about these benthic macroinvertebrates a bit, and it's pretty obvious that they can be really good indicators of stream quality and stream health. But is there any drawbacks to using them or anything that is maybe less than ideal? Yeah. Benthic macroinvertebrates compared to a lot of other aquatic organisms are, you know, not as not as popular among people. And so for starters, there's actually a pretty significant shortage of, you know, experienced taxonomists that are that are able to identify these these macroinvertebrates down to the level necessary to do these water quality assessments. And so if there's any, you know, younger college students listening and you're you're looking for a field to get into, uh, this this is a need in, you know, the aquatic entomology entomology area. Um, again, a lot of people, you know, like doing fish identification because fish are, are large and flashy and, you know, you may get to hold a, a 20 inch brown trout every now and again. Uh, these macroinvertebrates aren't as flashy. And so they're a little less popular for, for people being interested in, in being able to, to learn about them. Another way is, you know, some of the protocols. And so there's a lot of debate uh, kind of all over the world on, you know, how we should collect these macroinvertebrates. And so, for example, uh, here in Pennsylvania, we specifically target riffle run habitats uh, and we don't target any other habitats. So we're not targeting any deeper, uh, slower flowing habitats like pools um, that are residing in the stream. And so, you know, there's there's protocols uh, across the across the world that that do require this because they acknowledge that uh, these different macroinvertebrates uh, also have different habitat preferences. And so by only sampling macroinvertebrates from a riffle, uh, you may not be accounting for those different ones that are that are surviving in the pools. And so there's a lot of debate, you know, again, in that that regard of what what methods need to be used to to collect these macroinvertebrates. Uh, another shortcoming of of these these methods is, you know, being able to collect macroinvertebrates when they're readily available. Uh, to not get into all the ecology of them, but a lot of the macroinvertebrates have pretty pretty simple but unique life cycles, whether it's a three-stage or a four-stage life cycle. And so if you're not familiar, these aquatic invertebrates, the majority of them are actually what we would call, I guess, nymphs or larvae or juveniles of, you know, the terrestrial adults. And so these aquatic invertebrates are actually developing. And when they reach a, a maturity, they actually emerge as these winged terrestrial adults 
that typically have pretty short lifespans. And so those invertebrates, again, they may live in a stream for one to three years, uh, but when they emerge as an adult, they may live anywhere from 24 hours to a week or two at most. Uh, probably one of the most uh, you know popular hatches is what they're referred to when the adults emerge or you know some of the mayfly hatches that occur you know all over the world but especially here in Pennsylvania and especially down around around Lancaster uh, the adult emergence is so numerous that the the adults when they're flying off the river are attracted to lights along bridges and when they end up you know dying they fall down onto the bridge and they actually have to take dump trucks to scoop the dead adults off of the bridge and so a lot of these methods try to collect macroinvertebrates when they are the aquatic invertebrates and when they're readily abundant and of a mature size that makes identification fairly easy and so if i was to go and sample a stream Anytime between November and May, uh, there's a good chance I'm going to find a, a lot of macroinvertebrates and they're going to be a fairly decent size. And so that's because a lot of the life cycles of these macroinvertebrates are they're developing during this time. And then probably the larger proportion of them are going to emerge as these terrestrial adults to reproduce anytime starting from Actually, probably right now, some of the winter stoneflies are starting to come off. And then even through uh, the spring is the majority uh, of them. And then even, you know, into the early summer uh, and year round, ultimately they hatch out. But the the bit again, the big hatches are all occurring, you know, typically in the spring. And so one of the downfalls of, say, if I go out to sample a stream in the summertime uh, for macroinvertebrates is that all of these hatches just happened and the adults have just recently laid their eggs that all of the new nymphs and larvae in the aquatic uh, environment are all very, very small, which makes collection very difficult to even catch them in your net. Uh, but it also makes identification for even experienced taxonomists extremely difficult when you're trying to identify, you know, not just a very small organism, but one that doesn't have any of its characteristic features yet because it's just so early on in development. And so there is a, a limitation to a lot of these methods. And so again, kind of Pennsylvania's preferred collection window is November through May. And, you know, that kind of makes it, I don't want to say a hassle, but uh, when we're doing a lot of water quality assessments on our schedule, we only have a very small window in a given year to, to go out to the streams and, and do these assessments. Because if we miss it and these insects hatch out, um, we have to wait till the following year to, to go back and do them again in order and, to accurately represent how healthy the stream is. And I just have to say, having done some of these winter sampling events with you, it is extraordinarily cold in some of these streams to go out in the middle of February in your waders to collect some of these things. My toes got very, very cold. So I guess that's a really good background of what you did and what you're still doing uh, before you came into the lab, before we started research. I had no experience in any of that, uh, but you came in wanting to work on aquatic organisms, macros, something with aquatic insects. But given I didn't have any experience with that, I pitched this idea like, hey, let's work on water mites because I, that's something I do have experience in. 
And it actually worked out really well. But can you tell the listeners what are water mites, how your project has kind of developed, and what we've started to find out with them? Sure. So I said earlier that very few people can really differentiate or identify different macroinvertebrates. Uh, I guarantee you that it is a very small, small, small percentage of people in the world that have even heard of water mites, not even being able to identify them, but even know that these things exist. And so water mites are in a type of aquatic invertebrate. They're usually pretty small and they basically, when you put them under magnification, look like an underwater tick. And so these, uh, these water mites, we now know that are they're one of the more diverse and abundant groups of aquatic invertebrates uh, on the planet. Uh, currently, there's over 7,500 described species, uh, and then there's estimates that another 4,000 have yet to be discovered. And so they exist all throughout the world, uh, except Antarctica, and they basically inhabit every freshwater environment known uh, even some saltwater environments. And again, I'm talking, you know, your typical streams, rivers, lakes, ponds, uh, but even some extreme freshwater environments like uh, uh, those hot springs. Uh, they, they've actually been found in deep in aquifers, cave settings, uh, pretty pretty much wherever there's fresh water, they, you, there's a good chance you can find some water mites. And so, uh, these water mites, uh, being as diverse and, and abundant as they are, um, they also have a pretty pretty unique lifestyle compared to other invertebrates in that I explained earlier that they look like uh, uh, aquatic ticks, and that's because they they are parasites. And so you don't have to worry you don't if you're going to get in a stream, you don't have to worry about water mites biting you because they parasitize other bendic macroinvertebrates. So they are actually attaching to uh, these different hosts, uh, so mayflies, stoneflies, uh, you know, regular flies, caddisflies, all of these macroinvertebrates. And so they are, you know, uniquely tied to the whole, the whole ben Bendit community. And so despite all of this, you know, them being a very abundant, very diverse, uh, being really, really closely connected to the rest of, rest of the Bendos, these water mites are widely neglected in aquatic aquatic monitoring water quality monitoring throughout the world and so you know again there was a time where people didn't really think that water mites were super abundant we didn't even really knew knew or know that they existed and so when we were designing these these protocols that we kind of still use to collect aquatic invertebrates today we, we didn't include water mites um so we were just basically ignoring them. And it's almost a, a cultural precedent that we don't include them today. Um, but again, there's there's certain perceptions out there as well that, that probably contribute to this neglect. Uh, again, we didn't used to think water mites were very common. Uh, we now know that in a stream setting, uh, one square meter of substrate can have as many as 5,000 individual water mites just in that one square meter. And so they can be very numerous at times, depending on the conditions. In addition, uh, there's kind of this widespread perception that water mites are very difficult to collect and they're very difficult to identify. And again, a large part of that can probably be attributed to just how small they are compared to a lot of other bendic macroinvertebrates. And so 
historically, a lot of studies have, or maybe I shouldn't say historically, recently, you know, within the last couple of decades, a lot of studies have started to focus on water mite taxonomy, uh, distribution, ecology, that sort of thing. And there's actually a handful of studies that have started to look at water mites and whether or not they can be used as bioindicators of water quality conditions, similar to how we use the rest of the Bendic macroinvertebrates. And so to not go into you know, all of those studies in detail, uh, the general consensus uh, from what we've, we've been able to find is that water mites are similarly sensitive to, to various pollution events as benthic macroinvertebrates. Uh, in some studies, they've found to be more, better indicators than you know, some of the macros that we typically affiliate with clean water, like mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies. And so, you know, it's really an emerging field in a way, being able to not just understand that water mites can be used as bioindicators, but now trying to encourage different agencies and scientists to incorporate water mites into their into their bioassessment bioassessment protocols. So I'm going to back up just a bit. You mentioned that water mites were thought to be rare or uncommon in streams, and now we know that they can be extremely abundant, and there's some cultural force behind not including them. Can you talk about the differences in collecting methods and how that might affect whether or not water mites are collected, say, with a standard macro, uh, benthic macroinvertebrate collecting method, and then looking at like when you collect benthic macros, like do you get water mites in those samples and how do you deal with them, like in Pennsylvania for assessing water quality? Do you include them at all? Yeah. So again, historically, we used to think that that water mites weren't very abundant. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, when you pick up a rock and you look at it, you may see other macroinvertebrates. You don't really see water mites crawling around. And so people weren't seeing these things. And then the, I believe the very first collection methods that were, were focused on, you know, collecting water mites was actually people just taking a, a jar and dipping it in the water column and letting the water flow in and then kind of picking up and being like, oh, are there any water mites in here? Nope. And then every now and again, they might get one and they're like, oh, well, these things are, are pretty rare. And I don't know, I don't remember who it was or what study first did it, but they actually took a net then and, you know, disturbed the substrate and put that substrate in a pan and, you know, let everything crawl out and found thousands upon thousands of water mites. And they're like, oh, okay, these things are, you know, very abundant. And so, Today, we still don't see them as readily in a lot of our Bendic macroinvertebrate samples. And there's probably a couple, couple reasons behind that. And so one, when we do our sampling for Bendic macroinvertebrates, we are using a pretty fine, fine mesh net. Uh, it's about 500 micrometers is at least Pennsylvania standards. I think some other, other states and countries may use larger or smaller stuff. Um, but here in Pennsylvania, we use 500 micrometer nets, um, which is small enough to catch the majority of the Bendic macroinvertebrates. But again, when we go to, to process these, we put these, you know, the contents of the net into a sample jar and pour ethanol in it to, to basically, to basically kill everything in the jar um, so that we can, we can process it back in the lab. 
And so when we're sorting through it in the lab, it can be very difficult to, to find these water mites kind of mixed in with all these different contents, all the different macroinvertebrates. You know, we get a lot of, you know, fine silt, sand, rocks, debris, leaves, uh, twigs. So lots of different materials. And then to try and pick out these individual little water mites from it um, that are not moving around is very difficult. And so scientists have, have developed methods now that are pretty successful at, at collecting water mites um, from a stream. And so one of the major things is we use a smaller mesh net. And so we use a, a 250 micrometer net. So it's about half the diameter as the, the standard Bendic macroinvertebrate nets. And then similarly, we're disturbing the, the substrate, allowing everything to flow down into the net. And then rather than preserving, you know, the contents of that uh, with ethanol, we're actually keeping everything alive and putting it in a jar of water and taking it back to the lab. And we pour it into these white photographic trays. And so with everything still alive, you can actually see everything start to swim out of the material. And they usually accumulate along the edges and corners of the pan. Uh, but then you can pretty easily pipette or suck out all of the different different water mites that are present in the sample. And so being able to, to get them out and, you know, analyze them then further under the, under a microscope and identify them. I believe I also skipped over, you had asked about, you know, what do current protocols, how do they include water mites? And so a lot of the protocols do acknowledge that, you know, water mites exist, but instead of identifying them down, again, we identify the macroinvertebrates down to the genus. Uh, we really don't identify water mites beyond this is a water mite. And so a lot of the protocols actually lump them together as kind of this artificial grouping of all their seven super families that, you know, represent all 7,500 species of these mites. And so we lump everything together as uh, usually it's hydrocarina or hydracnidia are the two, two main groups that, uh, people identify it as. And so again, you're, you're lumping in this enormously diverse group of bendic macroinvertebrates into one organism, basically, rather than identifying down. And I had mentioned earlier about the pollution tolerances, uh, that hydracnidia label has a pretty high pollution tolerance. And so they're saying that, you know, I think it's seven. So they're saying that these water mites are pretty, pretty tolerant of pretty tolerant of pollution and, you know, degraded water quality conditions, which a lot of studies, again, have shown that all of these different water mites behave very similarly to the rest of the macroinvertebrate community in that different water mites may be able to tolerate pollution. And some may be very, very sensitive to even minute changes in water quality. And so it's really, really not good that we're not representing water mites more in these these biomonitoring protocols. So I think that's a really good setup for the work that you've been doing. I don't want to dive too much into like the specific methods, but can you give us a broad overview of what you're doing, where you're collecting, kind of a, a broadish overview of, of the project, and then um, what we started to find with these water mites? Sure. So our project is basically focused on sampling water mites here in central Pennsylvania. 
and comparing their their populations between both impaired and healthy streams to see do the communities change uh, between these streams. And so uh, again, there's several studies across the world that have looked at at water mites as bioindicators. Uh, a lot of them are from Europe. I believe there are several from from Central America uh, and Australia. This is, I believe, the second study from North America that has specifically focused on on this issue. Uh, the previous one uh, looked at a lake in Michigan. And so they were looking at more lentic species, so a lake ecosystem, whereas our study is specifically focused on, on stream ecosystems. And so ours is the first North American study to look at uh, you know, stream water mites as bioindicators of of the stream's water quality conditions. And so, again, Pennsylvania is a pretty good study region for this type of thing. And so Pennsylvania has, I believe it's around 86,000 miles of streams. About a third of those are impaired or polluted to to some extent that they're not meeting their, their water quality conditions. And again, they use that IBI and the macroinvertebrates to, to determine that. And so again, about a third of these streams are impaired. So it really makes uh, Pennsylvania a unique area to being able to compare healthy streams to, to unhealthy streams. And so our study, uh, we selected 26 total sites, uh, 13 on healthy streams, 13 on impaired streams. And we went out and collected water mites. And so uh, looking at some of the previous methods that have been been uh, been utilized to collect water mites. Again, a lot of historical studies focused on on taxonomy and you know ecology. Uh, their methods were more qualitative in that they just wanted to catch as many mites as possible so that they could go back and do whatever their DNA analyses, their their ecology studies, all that type of stuff. Whereas in order to do these biomonitoring, there is biomonitoring work. We need more of a, a quantitative sampling scheme, and so we actually designed designed our own um, and you know the methods uh, published out there if you're interested in, in reading about it but uh we really took a couple different aspects and combined them and so we took some of the the sampling advice from from those qualitative methods uh, that had been previously developed for sampling water mites and then we incorporated a lot of standardizations from Pennsylvania's current Bendic macroinvertebrate methodology. And so, for example, I don't want to dive into to that uh, in great detail, but when we go out to our study site, we're identifying a 100-meter reach of stream, and we collect four uh, what we call collection efforts. And so that's where we actually stand in the stream with our net and disturb the substrate and our water mites flow into the net. So we do four of those in riffle habitats throughout that 100-meter reach, and we take the contents in the net of those four those four efforts, put them in the one jar, and then take it back to the lab. And we go through a whole whole picking process and then the identification process to, to get those mites out and identify them. And so we identified our mites down to genus, uh, similar to how the Bendic macroinvertebrate methods are. And so, then, sorry to interrupt. You say we identified. I just want to clarify for everybody listening. You identified all of this. I helped with some of the field work, but all of the lab work all of the picking. This is all you. So. Yeah. All right. So, so yeah, I, I picked them and identified these mites then back in the lab. Uh, and again, identified them to the genus. And then 
we were really able to to compare them then between these these attaining and impaired sites and look at the the different assemblages. And so overall, I believe I identified just shy of, of 15,000 individual water mites. I think it was around 14,800 so, which really ticked me off that I was just shy of the 15,000 mark. Yeah, it'd be a nice big round number. I really wish we would have just got one more sample. Yeah, it's all right. It is what it is. But uh, yeah, so we we identified these these 15,000 water mites. And uh, I think we recorded about 14 genera, 10 or 11 families, and then all, or no, I think five super families are what we, what we identified out of it. And so maybe I should have stated earlier, but I guess maybe backtrack. So Pennsylvania, nobody's really looked at water mites. There's a few studies out there um, that have documented a couple couple different taxa that are present here in the state. But of the 14 genera that we found, only two of them had been previously documented. Uh, those were studies from 2016 and, and 2017. And so for the most part, I mean, even us just finding these water mites and saying, hey, they're here is you know significant in its own way. Uh, but again, so we we identified these mites and then calculated some different metrics. And so we looked at you know abundance, uh, richness, so the diversity of the water mites, and then we even calculated a, a Shannon diversity index, which is this index that kind of weighs the evenness and the diversity of the sample. And so we compared these metrics then between these attaining and impaired sites and found that there are significant differences, uh, especially in the diversity of the sh of water mites across these different streams. And so similar to what's kind of been found elsewhere in the world, richness is significantly higher in healthier streams, whereas, uh, you know, it, it decreases in, 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 in lesser streams or reduced streams. And so in addition to doing all of these, these water mite assessments, we also did our standard Bendic macroinvertebrate water chemistry and habitat assessments and then compared the water mite metrics to each of those different aspects of the stream to see, okay, this is how we currently assess streams. How do the water mites relate to these individual parameters? And what we found is that water mite richness is related to bendic macroinvertebrate richness. So the healthier the stream, the higher diversity of bendic macroinvertebrates, the higher diversity of, of water mites, uh, the better the habitat, the more diversity of water mites and, and so on without going yet, yeah, without going into great detail. That's kind of the gist of our findings. One thing that I thought was, was interesting, you've mentioned richness changes with habitat quality. Uh, and you mentioned that we measured abundance, but you haven't talked about that. So does abundance change with water quality and talk about that for, for a bit? Yeah. So what we found is abundance really doesn't matter. It's really not a, a significant metric of how healthy a stream is or not. And so we had high and low water mite abundance in both impaired and healthy streams. And so just from, from our observations, then what typically happens is, okay, we have a healthy stream. It's got a diversity. Uh, you know, each of these mites are, you know, relatively abundant uh, in the stream. Some are, you know, more abundant than others, but you know, their presence is there. 
And then as we get into these unhealthy streams or these impaired streams, we see that diversity start to drop. So maybe we go from, from 10 taxa to five taxa, uh, but that abundance. So whereas everything may have been more evenly distributed amongst those 10 taxa, those five taxa all of a sudden really start to thrive. And so one, one, one genus in particular that we noticed this with was, was hygrobates. And so we had several impaired streams where, where hygrobates comprise almost 80% of the entire water mite sample. In some cases, that was, I think, over 400 individuals. That one genus was just super abundant in several impaired sites. And it was present in a lot of our attaining sites, but there may have only been 10, 20. Typically, they made up, you know, maybe 5 or 10% of a sample or less. So, you know, they were present in these healthier streams, but, you know, not nearly as dominant as, you know, these impaired streams. And so what that tells us then is that that taxa, hygrobates, is pretty pollution tolerant. And so, you know, when the stream starts degrading, the water or starts reducing in water quality, you know, those other taxas start to fall out. I don't know if that opens up resources, space, food, you know, again, insect hosts uh, to for these hygrobates to, to really explode and exploit, you know, the available resources now that they have less competition. Um, and I believe that's been a similar finding has been found in, in Europe where hygrobates, uh, specifically, I think it's the species hygrobates fluvialis or something like that is very, very tolerant of organic pollution. So things like nutrients that we find typically in agriculturally impaired streams. And so it's, pretty exciting and reassuring to, to find that and being able to compare it to some of the European findings as well. I'm a little bit jealous of the Europeans. Uh, they've actually, they're, they actually know their water might fauna fairly well, almost guaranteed that our hygrobates are undescribed. Uh, and that's kind of a, one of the reasons you didn't mention, but that we didn't go to species and just identified everything to genus is aside from Torrenticola, which Ray Fisher has looked at, he was a guest actually twice on Arthropod before you can go find uh, his episodes. Aside from that group, a lot of these species are totally undescribed and it would be way outside the scope of Logan's project to like go ahead and describe the 10 or 15 hagrobates and five or 10 other of this genus and five or 10 of that genus. Yeah, I think we've, I think we've estimated that, you know, definitely over 50% of the mites we've collected are undescribed, if not closer to I'm, 80 I'm guessing it's 80 to 90% are undescribed, which is great because, I mean, that's a lot of work for some taxonomists to come along, but it doesn't really help you take them to species right now. So that's great that water mites can be used for, at the generic level at least, for water quality indicator work as, as bioquality indicators. There was one other aspect of your project that we did. So all of these, all the samples for, for this IBI work or this water quality indicator work we collected in the summer, all at the same time, but you also had some seasonal collections that we did. Can you go tell the audience about those a bit? Yeah. So in addition to, again, kind of the water quality focused aspect of our project, um, for that, we sampled 26 sites uh, all in August of 2021. And I think we did a couple in August of 2022. But then in addition to that, we selected nine of those sites and sampled them bi-monthly 
from August of 2021 to August of 2022. And so the reason for for doing this, uh, and I guess I touched on it a little earlier, is again, these scientists are trying to encourage uh, or find ways to 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 encourage uh, the inclusion of water mites into to biomonitoring protocols. And as part of that, um, we need to really understand the ecology of water mites. And so for the Bendic macroinvertebrates, we target uh, you know, our sampling efforts in that very, very narrow window from November to, to May. So what's that, about six months um, or less than six months, five months? Very uh, narrow being half of the year. Yeah, half of the year. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, half, half the year window. No, it is it is narrow though, because not to interrupt, but like we tried to go out and get water mites once and couldn't because of ice flows and dangerous conditions. So it is narrow in that because it's winter, you can't always go out and collect. I, I make a joke that it's half the year, but I mean you are right. Like it is a narrower window. Yeah, well, you have that half a year, but again, when you're gonna go out, all conditions have to be perfect. So not only, you know, do you have to be aware of you know hazardous conditions like ice and you know high flows. But yeah, again, weather is a huge, huge influence on that, especially in the spring. I mean, we may have storms every other day and the stream never gets down to a level that it's safe for you to actually go into into a stream to, to collect them. And so there's been years where just because of the current environmental conditions, scientists haven't been able to do their water quality monitoring. And so in that aspect, you know, again, it's it's very important to to understand when you it is the best time of year to collect these invertebrates, or in our case now, the water mites, so that we can, you know, sample them when they're, A, it's safe to go out into the stream, uh, but B, when they're abundant and developed enough that we can we can easily identify them. And so for our seasonal portion of the study, uh, we were able to go out in August, October, December, and I believe one of our nine sites in December, we weren't able to get into because of, of hazardous high, high flows and, and ice conditions. Um, we were not able to, to sample in February at all because of hazardous conditions, especially the ice flows where we were sampling. Uh, we were able to sample again in April, June, and then, and then August. And so what we found then is that water mite abundance definitely peaks in August, June, and then August. So our summer months uh, was when we recorded our highest abundances. And so water mites were present year round. We did collect them in the fall and winter and spring, but again, their abundance was very significantly different uh, compared to the, uh, compared to the summer months. Uh, richness on the other hand, uh, actually, you know, remained relatively relatively consistent throughout the year, uh, which was interesting. Um, it had a slight decrease in the winter. Um, probably some of those mites just going dormant or, or maybe moving, moving out of riffle habitats into, you know, maybe warmer pool habitats. So something like that, uh, could be a whole other study in itself. But, uh, yeah, the, the general consensus is that these water mites are readily present in the streams in the summer, which you know, again, from a from an application standpoint, opens up a another three month window of a potential biological monitoring. Uh, and typically in the summer, you don't have to worry about 
high flows or, or things like that as, as often. I mean, we definitely, we do get the occasional thunderstorm that raises the flows for a couple of days. Uh, but for the most part, higher temperatures, more evaporation, the streams are at a very low uh, and safe level, uh, making it very ideal for, for going out and doing these, these biomonitoring applications. And so that was a, a very unique finding. And yeah, one we're, we're currently writing up and working through some of the data. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good summary of your project so far. Is there anything that you wanted to add that we haven't covered? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah, I think we covered everything. I've been really happy with it. The results are exciting, I think, and it's really nice to see kind of these ideas that have been talked about, like water mites are good water quality indicators, like shown. Um, you've been shown before, but you know, it's nice to have that replication of what's been done in Europe and Australia here in North America. I did want to mention you you said that there was one other North American study. It only came out in 2022, so not quite getting scooped because they were in a lake habitat in in you're in a you know mountain stream habitat. But uh, when we started this project, there were no North American studies. So I do want to I did want to point that out. The mites are finally getting their recognition in the United States. So yeah. Well, Logan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today and talking through your project. Uh, I hope the listeners appreciate it. I've really appreciated you as a student and all the work that you've put in. It's been great seeing you develop uh, through your master's project in this work. And it's been great working with you. If you want to find us on the web, you can find the show at arthro-pod.blogspot.com. Remember the dash or you won't be able to find it. You can find me on Twitter at mscavarla36. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time, same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod Gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. Ah, damn it. I forget how we close this show out.